When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. I still have more material to wade through from the Unity panel discussion, but I wanted to take a break to talk about a learning opportunity that includes a giveaway to an event that's coming up at the end of this month. In case you aren't aware, the annual Women of Color Beyond Belief Conference is happening September 30th to October 2nd, 2022. I often promote the importance of exposing ourselves to marginalized voices to learn more about communities that deal with oppression, and this event is a fantastic opportunity to do just that. Let me mention before I get too far into it that I'm not affiliated with this event any more than any other random supporter. Last year, I paid for a half-page ad in their program, even though I didn't have an ad or anything to really promote. I just wanted to support the event. This year, I took out a full-page ad and actually sent them ad copy to use. I also reached out to Facebook to amplify the event and offered to cover the cost of an online streaming registration for folks who can't afford to attend. I attended remotely last year, and it not only included access to the talks, but interactive exercises as well. I even made some social media friends, and it was a lot of fun. Even as an introvert, I enjoyed it and saw it as a chance to do some work unlearning racism. Some of my friends saw the offer to cover remote registrations and donated to help cover more. I didn't ask for donations, but people sent me money for it, and I told them I'd try to do what I could to continue to promote the conference and put the money to good use. I also saw that several of my friends were inspired to buy their own remote registrations because they said they could afford it on their own and realized what an opportunity it was. It's not just a chance for black community support for people in the black secular community. It's something we can all learn from and it's open to anyone who would like to show up and learn. That being said, thanks to the generosity of one of my friends, I'm able to cover the cost of four more remote online streaming registrations for the conference. And here's how you can take advantage of that offer. First, I'm working on the honor system. My goal would be to provide this opportunity to people who can't otherwise afford it. However, if nobody's in that situation in the audience, I'm also happy to make this a general promotional giveaway just to boost attendance for the conference. The registration is only $25 a person and $10 for students, so it's already extremely affordable. If you can afford it on your own, I encourage you to use the link in the description to sign up at the conference site. It's a simple process, and it's all done through email. Easy peasy. If you're more interested in entering to try and use one of the slots I'm giving away, I'm including instructions in the description. Basically, just email me at the address in the description by September 25th at midnight central time with subject line, entry for WOCBB. In the body of the email, add a note to tell me whether or not you have a financial hardship. You don't have to explain further. It's all on the honor system but I'm going to give priority to folks who can't afford it. 
Include your first and last name, an email address, and your pronouns. This is all I need to order your online registration. I'll follow up with you via email, making sure you receive the receipt and you're all set. None of the information you send me will be shared publicly, and it will only be used for registration for the conference. My primary goal is to provide free registration for four people who can't otherwise afford it. If it turns out four people who can't afford it don't reach out to me, then I'll use folks who can afford it, but who are going to try for a promotional registration. So even if you can afford it, feel free to throw your name in the hat. On Facebook, only one person said they needed help. So it's possible I don't get four people asking for assistance, in which case I'll give the registrations away as a fun promotion for the conference. And finally, if it's a complete bust and I don't get at least four people who want a free registration, I'll just donate whatever money isn't used to the conference directly. So there's no losing with this. Either it helps with raising attendance or it helps with straight up financial support, but the conference is going to be supported no matter what. I had a personal story I wanted to share, and I wasn't sure how best to convey it. I know that despite not doing atheist activism directly any longer, I still reach back quite often when talking about issues. This is because it's the only other community I was heavily involved with after I left religion, and so I have a decade of experience with that community to draw from when I want to talk about things I've seen and experienced to use as real-world examples. I hope it doesn't get too tedious, but most of the people who are still friends of mine and probably a lot of folks who follow this podcast currently are folks who know me from those days. So in a lot of ways, even stepping down from a platform and activism, I'm still interacting with that community, even if it's unintentional. Most folks who know me know that when it comes to public statements, I try to focus on concepts rather than individuals. I find that when it becomes too much about a person or a direct call out, the point can be easily lost. Suddenly, the conversation is absorbed into people defending a person rather than looking at an event or an impact or a principle. This is why a lot of times I use analogies or vague stories. It's not that I'm trying to get people to guess who I'm talking about. It's that I'm trying to get people to understand it doesn't really matter who I'm talking about because most often it's actually not about a person, but about what's happening to a community. As Harper noted in a past episode, When you call out someone with a little bit of public presence, you often get pushback from their base telling you to stand down because they're an ally. And we know this because they've said they're an ally. And so they're an ally, according to them and their base, even when they do damage to the communities they claim to support. With those disclaimers in place, I want to talk about something that made me want to promote this conference even more this year, and most especially to white people within the secular community, although those registrations I'm offering are open to anyone and everyone who wants to attend. I often talk about dominant culture and how it has the largest platforms and the loudest microphones. It has the advantage of owning the entire infrastructure of the society. The institutional power that it wields makes it formidable. This is why the concept of the marketplace of ideas is as ridiculous as the concept that a mom-and-pop startup today can compete with large national or international business chains. We all saw what happened during COVID. Here in Austin, we lost a huge chunk of independent businesses who didn't have the resources to weather the storm. And all that's left now are large chains who had the clout and resources to withstand a year of closure and workarounds. There is no such thing as free market, where some people have gigantic advantage and access to opportunity and others have less or none at all. In the marketplace of ideas, dominant culture narratives are the chain stores where we're all used to shopping. 
and marginalized voices and communities are the mom and pop shops, if they're lucky enough to have any platform access at all. Last year, as I mentioned, I took out a half-page ad that really wasn't even an ad. It was just something I was aware of that presented a chance to help with anti-racism, and since in a white supremacist culture, I'm the beneficiary of advantages, benefits, and opportunities that come out of racist oppression that others face, it's my obligation to take these opportunities where I find them, so I did. I was surprised to learn that the contribution came with a free online registration, and that's how I ended up attending last year. I got to see some great speakers and, as I said earlier, meet some new friends. One of the more impactful talks dealt with racism within the skeptical community. The title was, Hashtag Skeptics So White, How White-Dominated Spaces Reduce the Movement to a Farce. As you might intuit from the title, this was not a gentle rebuke. It was hard-hitting, straightforward, and provided at a conference and in a space where the message was warmly received. At this conference, this message was non-controversial and resonated with the audience. During interactive sessions, I was able to talk to attendees about personal experiences within the community that made them feel unwelcome and thankful for spaces like Women of Color Beyond Belief Conference and Black Nonbelievers. I want to be completely clear that this is not a message you're likely to hear at your average atheist conference or convention. Where diversity is usually only defined is not every single speaker there being a cis white man. The talk I heard at the Women of Color conference was a talk I was only going to hear if I put myself into spaces where the dominant voices aren't running the show and owning the narrative. I was glad I was in that space. I felt honored to hear that voice and the voices of the other attendees. And I carried that message with me when I left because it had broader social implications beyond the secular community. I remember when I was still active in the atheist community, anytime we'd have someone on from black non-believers, there were always comments asking why there's a need for a group specifically for black atheists and secular people. The people asking weren't asking sincerely. They were asking with hostility. The reason they were asking was that they didn't put themselves into spaces where they'd hear the actual answers. They sat in their white-dominated spaces, surrounded by white-dominated narratives, and felt completely validated as they tried to invalidate the need for support among those who have been historically and continue to be, to this day, excluded. Truth be told, I was embarrassed by these fans. I was, and still am, embarrassed to know that anyone so close-minded and unaware was a supporter of anything I did. The only upshot of what I do now is that most of those folks have disavowed me, and I'm glad to finally be shed of them because they aren't people who care about learning. All they really cared about was sticking it to religious people, much the way Trump supporters enjoy owning the libs. They shared a lot in common with MAGA, to be honest, not just the pettiness, but the bigotry as well. It was as if they'd rejected religion, but absorbed all the worst aspects of conservative Christianity from social exposure. But that's for another day. Not very long after attending last year's conference and hearing that impactful talk and speaking to people there about why and how the traditionally white secular spaces were largely not meeting the needs of communities of color, I saw a white cis male atheist in a prominent leadership position post an article declaring the community as diverse and vibrant. Again, this was not very long after being exposed to marginalized voices of color telling me the community is anything but. The article had a vibe of, 
sure, we're not perfect, but we're doing awesome with diversity. It oozed dominant culture narrative. And I understood what I was seeing because I'd seen it before when I finally quit the community. A smaller, marginalized community was sending up flares to the best of their ability to alert the larger community that it was not being welcoming. And rather than respond to ask what they could do better, the dominant culture faction within the community chose to set off an entire fireworks display to completely obscure that flare in the sky. And it works. Every time. I was surprised when someone working behind the scenes for the larger group alerted me They were in talks with the actual speaker I had heard at the conference to try and improve some of the problems that were called out. This only left me bewildered. Did the white guy who wrote the article know this? Was he aware that talks were ongoing to address a racist problem when he wrote an article declaring the problem is not really so much of a problem? Or was he just giving his white perspective that racism writ large had been addressed without any knowledge of the ongoing work to address the racism he suggested wasn't a big deal? Either way, it was a white person talking over and not listening. But worse, it was a prominent figure handing ammunition to a white dominant culture within the community to dismiss the voices of non-white women trying to explain there actually is a substantial problem that needs fixing and addressing, not dismissing and erasing. Imagine someone in the community reading only the white narrative, because that's what most white members, the majority of the community, is going to hear. They talk about minorities and marginalized people creating echo chambers, but that's exactly what they perpetuate. They choose which conferences to support. They choose which speakers to promote. They choose who will be the chain store and who will be the mom and pop shop every time they choose a podcast to listen to or a conference to attend or where they send their money. And then those podcasts and conferences and organizations who take their money Tell them all what a great group of people they are and how they're doing everything so well and any problems those minorities and marginalized people may express are just so much bullshit they don't need to listen to. They create a community that tells them what they want to hear and then they even get to hear how they aren't the echo chamber. The voices saying they're not doing so great with racism, those are the real echo chambers. They insulate themselves from any deviations to the message they want to hear. I had only heard that talk at the conference because of a surprise registration. Otherwise, I might have read the article, seen the non-white faces presented as proof of the solidity of white secular community allyship, and thought, all is well. I'd be confronted with people of color telling me there's a racism problem, and I'd point to this or that black person in the article for proof that can't be true. I would my black friend my way into believing I can't be racist, that my community can't be racist. I'd join this author, not in amplifying black voices, but in using the few people of color who are working hard within the dominant community, tokenizing and objectifying them, using them as human shields to show how not racist I am, instead of using my platform to share their message that we have a problem that needs to be confronted and corrected, and we need their voices to learn from in order to do that. When I buy a product on Amazon, I'm less interested in what the seller has to say about it than what the users have to say about it. It doesn't matter to me how great the seller talks up their product if the reviews are all about what garbage it is. I want to know what the user experience is actually like. 
And I don't get that from the seller. I get it from the reviews. If the seller says it's what I need and the users love it, I'm more inclined to buy it than if the seller says it's what I need and the users are trashing it in reviews. When I'm confronted with a non-white woman talking to an audience mainly composed of non-white people and all of them are resonating with the message that secular spaces are very white and not very welcoming to them, I am less concerned with what a white person has to say about how not racist their spaces are. And I don't care that they can point to this or that non-white face that works in their organization. I'm not impressed when the user reviews are telling me otherwise. I don't care about the distracting, lovely fireworks. I care about the flair they're trying so hard to obscure. Marginalized people will work with an organization for many reasons. When it comes to working with an organization, it's complicated. A lot of marginalized and minoritized people, myself included, have come through their own internalized bigotry. I know there are surely women who support anti-choice, for example. There are women who might work in orgs that have sexism issues because they believe that working within a power structure gives them the best access to change it for the better. I don't judge how any non-white person chooses to take on oppression and marginalization, whether they work within a system or outside of it. But the reality is that one of the risks of doing inside work is that oppressors will sometimes use your presence to validate themselves. I felt used in this way shortly before leaving the community. It was one of the reasons I left, that my continued presence provided validation that the organization wasn't misogynistic, while it did damage to other women who are trans. Others who were there remained to continue trying to use the space to do good in other areas. But make no mistake, we were all being tokenized. The question was only whether each of us could do more good inside or outside of the group. And there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer to that question. But the cost is hearing bigots whispering, My black friend my trans friend, my women friends. If I'm such a bigot, why is this person my friend, my wife, my colleague, my son, my daughter-in-law, my grandchild, my adopted child? I'm not sexist. I'm not racist. I'm not a transphobe. I can't be. Still, though, the onus is on the oppressor, not the oppressed. Oppressed and marginalized people are put into impossible situations. Is it better to be divorced from the power and trying to affect change? Or is it better to be integrated into a system to affect change? I honestly don't know, but I imagine that wherever you are, if you're able to do some good, there will almost always be an upshot and a downside. But no community gets better by pretending a problem isn't there. I can't even remember all the times I called out religious organizations for doing the same thing, ignoring a problem or knowingly denying the extent of it while working without transparency to fix it publicly making the victims look like they were blowing it all out of proportion and thereby subjecting them to even more abuse by the dominant culture who were ignorant about what was actually going on because they were only reading the seller's information, not the user reviews. But it's always the same pattern. A prominent, dominant culture person talking over the problem and saying everything is fine, erasing the message and talking over the voices I was hearing from people of color, from trans women, from anyone trying to push for them to actually change their system and do better. This is why these spaces where you actually get to hear something new and different and real 
are very important for you to access. This is why I want to promote this conference again in 2022. Because if you don't seek these spaces and these voices out, you won't ever hear them. They will be drowned out by the people who are telling you everything is fine as it is and nothing substantial needs to change, who are nearly always the same people who stand to gain from nothing changing, who have the dominant culture support and funding and benefits and advantages, and who have every reason to want to keep things exactly as they are and sell you that nothing substantial needs to change. Of course they want that to be the message. The current system favors them at every turn. And they don't want to put their gravy train at risk. Even if it means crapping on marginalized people every now and then to slap down the call to make spaces actually more diverse, not just appear more diverse. So drop me an email if you'd like to take advantage of one of the four slots. It's first come, first serve for the first four people who reach out with financial need. And if all four slots aren't claimed, I'll consider those who don't have financial need next. And again, if I don't get four takers, the money goes straight to the conference. Hope to see you there. it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.